Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Duro. Welcome to this episode. We're so glad you tuned in today. We're dedicating this episode to answering more questions many of you sent in. We had so many questions, we had to take this extra episode today to get them all in. And at the end of today's broadcast, we're going to announce the winner of our book giveaway. Well, let's get started. The first question we're going to tackle is from Nathan, Nathan from Oklahoma. Here's his question. What stops us from experiencing more and more the subjective side of our faith? What is the barrier or barriers that hinder our fellowship with the Spirit? Thank you, Nathan, for that question. The first and primary reason for hindering our experiencing the subjective side of our faith, or as Nathan asks, our fellowship with the Spirit, is an ignorance of the subjective. That's what I believe is the root cause. One of the most devastating things that is happening today is this appalling ignorance of what is available to any Christian. I think it's one of the saddest tragedies that many good teachers and preachers, men who I greatly respect, are teaching that anything subjective is out of the question, that it's not for us today. Of course, we are living in a day of great abuse and excess in the subjective realm. A significant movement of professing Christendom believes that whatever occurred in the New Testament can happen today. They teach we should be experiencing such phenomenon or miracles of the early church. Well, I would never say that God could not do something today that he did in the New Testament, but... The vast majority of these people are absolutely wrong-headed in their approach to the experiential. And as I said in an answer last week to a question, they desire the experience for the sake of the experience. And worse, they do not bring the Scripture to bear on their experiences to tell them if they are biblical or not. They believe that the experience has more authority than the Bible. Well, listen carefully. I reject this completely, absolutely reject it. However, it seems to me that the non-charismatic segment of Christianity has made just as equally a tragic mistake as the charismatics. They have rejected the experiential altogether out of fear of an emotionalism that's not motivated by sound doctrine, they deny all emotionalism. And with their denial is the rejection of biblical emotion stirred up by the Holy Spirit's use of Scripture to the mind and heart of the Christian. The result has been that in many non-charismatic churches, biblical truth concerning communion with God is altogether unknown. Because pastors and teachers don't dare approach the subject unless, of course, to criticize such experiences. It's not only a wrong reading of Scripture to come to such a conclusion, but it totally misrepresents church history. 
There have been definite periods in the history of the church where you can see the Spirit of God poured out upon churches and Christians, just as you saw in the New Testament. Incredible and extraordinary things did occur. And to say that these things should be always happening, of course, that's definitely wrong, and it is also a mischaracterization of church history. They didn't always happen. These times of extraordinary movements of God are under the providence of God, meaning He determines when He will manifest Himself in power and glory. However, again, to say that these things do not happen now, that the canon of Scripture is complete, is also misleading at best and at worst reduces the Christian life to this mechanical academic kind of religion. For most who sit under this kind of teaching, conversion is the only experiential event a person is to experience. And once experienced, they don't intend to experience another until they see Christ. But this strips Christianity of its very power. Listen. Listen to the Apostle Peter and what he said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Whom having not seen... You love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Jonathan Edwards said of this verse in his book, Religious Affections, which I encourage you to secure and read carefully, that this verse in Peter's epistle is the very heart and soul of the Christian life. This is the proof or test of faith that rules them all. Do you have an affection for Christ, Christ himself, that leaves you feeling a joy that cannot be explained? It's not just an intellectual understanding of doctrine. It's not just belief in the validity of those doctrines. But this encounter with Christ by faith moves the heart and the soul into this affectionate worship that is felt. Now, surely unconfessed sin disrupts this kind of fellowship with God, but for many professing Christians, they don't even think such kind of fellowship is even possible to them. They do not understand or believe that relationship with Christ is not just based upon facts, propositional statements, and the mind's acceptance of those facts. It also includes the subjective affections of the heart. They've not been taught to see that relationship with Christ is as any close human relationship is. It's a living, vital, organic relationship between two people. In fact, they've been taught the very opposite. Their relationship to Christ is simply believing the facts of the gospel only. No, no, that's wrong. Certainly, we must believe the facts, but those facts are more than just propositional statements. They are a person. Christ is the gospel. It is who he is and what he has done that makes those facts good news. Our next question is from Teresa in Toronto. She writes, You have said that the subjective work of the Holy Spirit is essential in a Christian's life. 
Can I thus conclude that if there is almost no sign of the subjective work of the Spirit in a professing Christian's life, it could possibly mean that it's worthwhile for that person to examine their salvation? Well, thank you, Teresa. That's a very good question. Certainly, we must be very careful not to judge others' relationship with Christ by our own relationship with Him. I've learned that our Lord reveals Himself to each of us according to our temperament and personality, so we can relate to Him personally. Therefore, the relationship has a dynamic all of its own. My walk with the Lord will not be exactly like your walk with the Lord, but there will be some things that are alike and exist in every Christian's relationship, but the way those things are expressed and experienced are always unique to the person. There are some of us who are very passionate. We feel deeply. And there are others of us who are not wired to be very passionate nor to feel deeply. It's not that they are without any feeling whatsoever. It's that they have a, a lower capacity to feel. Ha-ha, but they do feel. Therefore, they can register joy in God. They can feel, to some degree, love for Him. It's not that they are completely dead in their emotions. No, they may not just feel as deeply as maybe you do. At the same time, if the person professing Christ has no subjective sense of the goodness of God in their lives, nor do they have any passion or feeling for such, then it is very natural that we should be suspect about their faith in God. Yes. Do they enjoy discussing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that they supposedly have experienced? Are they anxious to talk about His gracious activity in their lives? Do they experience the joy of living in Christ? If not, then the most vital aspect of Christianity is missing. And I fear most people who may attend a Sunday morning worship service has very little enthusiasm or interest in the things of God. They are religious, but spiritually dead. You see, Christ died, not just so we can be forgiven of sin and go to heaven when we die. The highest goal of His redemptive mission is to restore us to fellowship with God. If fellowship with God is not the priority, well, then there surely is a serious problem. The problem is that this person is missing the new heart that God promises to all. He regenerates. This is the problem that comes when we make becoming a Christian a work of man. When the gospel is so man-centered, this is what you can expect. No enthusiasm with God, and why should there be? They did what was necessary to become a Christian. They prayed a prayer. They came forward. They submitted to water baptism. They joined the church. They reformed their behavior. They have very little reason to feel anything for God as much as they have reason to glory in themselves. Salvation is the work of God alone. It's He and He alone that saves. It's He and He alone that transforms the sinner's heart and nature and changes him or her by giving them completely new dispositions, inclinations, 
and desires. And that, my friend, is a miracle. The person who has met the risen Christ knows that he or she has discovered mercy beyond their merit. They were allowed by God and given by God the ability to see and taste the glory of His goodness. This encounter radically changes them, no matter the personality or temperament. Yes, the person converted by God may remain a stoic, but there's still the ability to feel joy in God and His great love for them. And that is, that is their greatest joy. If not, they are not a Christian. It's just that simple. Now, what is our responsibility to these who we perceive note a little interest in God who claim to be professing Christians? And I think it is namely this, to lovingly share with them how you at one time had very little interest in the things of God, but that God gave you a new heart. Ask them, have they underwent a transformation of desires, loves, and hates. It is not, it's not love to say nothing and let a person march their way to hell when you think there's a possibility that to hell they are marching. So, indeed, we should love them enough to speak with them gently and wisely. Well, our next questioner comes from Heather from Oklahoma. Heather writes, I've been only experiencing Christ intellectually for years and go to a church that isn't conducive to the subjective experience. So how do I have subjective experiences with God? How do I break with the well-worn path of brain only, no heart? I can assure you, Heather, that we will be devoting several upcoming episodes to answering this question. But I do want to give a brief answer since you were so kind to take the time to write and submit this question. Now, before I answer the question, I think it's wise that we make sure we understand what we mean when using the word subjective experience. I'm not talking about having extraordinary experiences such as seeing Jesus with your physical eyes or hearing him with your physical ears. I'm not talking about visions and dreams. I'm not using this terminology to discuss miraculous spiritual gifts. Subjective experiences surely could include all of these. But that's not what I'm thinking when I use these two words. I strongly believe that we should not be actually seeking these extraordinary experiences. Oh, yes, I believe God can still perform them, but that's not the usual or ordinary way He operates. And secondly, I would say we should never seek experiences because the devil can give you any experience you want. So when using the word spiritual subjectivity, I'm talking about the normal and ordinary means of experiencing the reality of Christ through the Scriptures by the Holy Spirit. I also use it to describe divine guidance because I do believe God can subjectively lead me to know His will. So that's what I'm talking about when discussing spiritual subjectivity or biblical spirituality. So I want to answer your question now. The first thing I want to say is be sure you're a true Christian. Since I don't know the persons asking the question, at least most of them I don't, I have to be open to the possibility that the person asking the question may not be a Christian. 
If by hearing this podcast something has stirred your heart like nothing else before, then please find someone who not only confesses to be a Christian, but someone who's different from most people who only go to church on Sunday, and look for someone who's thoroughly interested in Jesus on Tuesday or Thursday as they are on Sunday. Find that person and ask them how they walk with Christ and experience Him. Share with them your reasons for believing you are a Christian and ask them to evaluate your testimony. That's what I would say first, Heather. Secondly, I want to say that this question ties in beautifully with the first question we dealt with yesterday about how we approach the Word of God. The Bible was given to us to be the means of knowing our God and His heart. Therefore, I need to read the Bible listening. Listening as God speaks to me because His written word is His voice. The Bible is the heart of God revealed. I'm hearing God's heart toward me when I read the word. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to subjectively apply the word of God to a person's heart. He takes the words of Christ, applies the spiritual life of those words to the hearer. So, Heather, I would say if you are to experience biblical spirituality, you first have to believe that God wants to speak to you through his word and that he will. The only thing God honors is faith, faith in him. The best way I know how to describe what I'm talking about is is to ask you to remember a time when a verse you had read or heard several times, if not scores of times, suddenly becomes alive to you. It's like turning the light on. You'd read it before, you believed it was true, but this day there was something overwhelming about it, something impactful that made your heart swell with joy or conviction or both. That's what I call an encounter with God. And that is just as real as Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. It's no less an encounter, even though it may not be as sensational. A great tool for the Lord to use to make that happen, and is something the Bible commands, is scriptural meditation. Now, we're going to devote several episodes to this holy practice. It's interesting to note that the Bible never, ever commands us to read it, except one place in the New Testament where it commands public reading of Scripture. But when dealing with private or individual times with the Bible, it never commands us to read it. Rather, it commands us to study it and to meditate on it. When you believe what you meditate on, you will experience the presence of God. So, Heather, please be patient and keep listening because I will break this down into manageable bite sizes so your appetite can taste and see how good the Lord is. Well, our final question today is from Cody from Texas. He writes, give some examples of subjective experience or leading based on the Bible, but not directly from particular texts of Scripture. Well, thank you, Cody, for the question. If I understand your question, you're asking for an example of God leading someone that was not through a specific text of the Bible, but God directed him or her apart from Scripture, and that did not contradict Scripture. 
Well, I could give several testimonies of this in my own life, but I've chosen to convey an experience of a man who was a secessionist. That is, he believed that the miraculous gifts found in the New Testament ended with the apostles and the finalization of the New Testament. He was thoroughly reformed and one of the best teachers of the Word of God I have ever heard. This man had an amazing ability to take the most complex doctrines and explain them in a way that the average guy could understand. His name was R.C. Sproul. In the recent biography of his life written by Stephen Nichols, there's an account of what Cody is asking about. Let me tell you the story. Sproul was hired to teach for one year only at his alma mater, Westminster College in western Pennsylvania. This was the place where Sproul was converted. In a YouTube video, Dr. Sproul shares this event that I'm about to share with you, and he said, quote, I loved every tree and every blade of grass on that campus, and I would have given anything to be able to stay on the faculty of that college, end of quote. But they had only hired him for just one year. Therefore, he began scouting for a new school to relocate and teach. And Gordon College in Boston, Massachusetts, asked him to come for an interview. He went and admitted that after the interview process, he was not excited about the position as he had been before. After returning from Boston, something very unusual happened. The president of Westminster College asked him to come to his office, where he offered Sproul a permanent contract to be a full-time instructor, just exactly what Sproul wanted. As he shared with his wife the job proposal, they both decided this is what they wanted to do. They would stay, and this is where they, he would live out his career. However, when he called the president of the school in Boston to inform him of his decision, the president begged him to consider his offer for at least one week. Please pray about it, he asked, to which Sproul agreed to do. Now, on the night of the seventh day, after much prayer, the Sprouls went to bed after midnight, having prayed all that evening about this decision. And since the Lord had not directed differently, Sproul said to his wife, All right, it's midnight. The week is up. And if the Lord wanted to call me to Massachusetts, he's had all the opportunity in the world to do it. We're going to stay. At three o'clock in the morning, Sproul was awakened by the ringing of the telephone. Upon answering the phone, he heard the voice of an old boyhood acquaintance who was a major airline pilot. His name was Ed McElvain. Although they knew, knew each other and considered each other a friend, they were not very close because Ed was four years older than Sproul. Alarmed, thinking something was wrong, Sproul asked if everything was okay. And here is the very thing that Ed said to Sproul that night as R.C. Sproul relays it. He, Ed, said, You're not going to believe this. I'm in Kansas City, and I got into bed about 2 o'clock a.m., and I just couldn't get to sleep. I've never had an experience like this, but I felt like I had to call you and tell you that you must accept that job in Boston. Sproul began to challenge his friend, to which his friend said, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is crazy. Call the doctor if you want. But I had this one thing come over me as I started to go to bed that I had to call you 
and it was urgent. Sproul interjected and said, Tell me why I'm supposed to do it. Ed answered, I don't know. All I know is I had to call you, tell you that you had to go to Boston. I'm not drunk. I don't know why this is. You do what you want. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And that was the phone call. The next morning, R.C. Sproul made two phone calls. One to his alma mater president explaining he was taking the job in Boston and the second call to Boston accepting the job offer. He called his mentor, Dr. John Gerstner, and told him what had happened. Gerstner said to him, Well, God can intrude in a mysterious way in the most austere of Calvinistic households. Dr. Sproul went on to explain that he did not believe that this was the normal way God leads us, and I agree with him. It isn't the normal or ordinary way the Lord guides his sheep. Sproul continued, warning that we should not expect these phenomenal signs, because to do so would reduce us to the adulterous level of the Pharisees who were seeking signs from Jesus. But then Sproul added, quote, I don't mean to suggest to you that God doesn't from time to time visit us with extraordinary providential direction. But we call it extraordinary providential direction because that's what it is. And then he emphasized the word extraordinary. I don't think we should assume that God will take us by the hand and move us from town to town, from job to job, and from relationship to relationship with this kind of dramatic manifestations. Sproul went on to say, There is a real sense in which the just shall live by faith, trusting that God will lead our steps principally and chiefly through the directions that He gives us to uh, in His Word. The chief way we are to discern the will of God is by pouring over the Word of God. And again, I agree. But the point is that R.C. Sproul was wise enough to allow that God can lead us directly and immediately or through a very subjective method. And when He does, such an experience must be thoroughly scrutinized under the microscope of God's Word. And the other test we have outlined in episode 5. And so that's all we are saying today. Yes, God chiefly, primarily leads us through the teaching of the Word of God, and as our minds are being renewed, we know the will of God instinctively. But there are those times when God, in His sovereign love and care for us, will do something very subjective and out of the ordinary. He will work extraordinary. Well, thank you for tuning in today. But before we sign off, we want to announce the winner of the book by Archibald Alexander, Thoughts on Religious Experience, published by Banner of Truth. And our winner was selected from all those who sent in questions for our Q&As. And the winner is Teresa from Toronto. Congratulations, Teresa. We'll be contacting you and getting this great book to you. Well, from all of us here at Real Truth Matters, May you experience God's love in a very tangible way. So long. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. 
If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.